sometimes Who isn't always strong Can't you see the hurt in me? I feel so all alone I wanna run to you Welcome to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it. And at the same time, we give back to charity. For more information, visit our website, theoriginaldoll.com. Big shout out to my Patreon supporters. If you want to join me and support the show, go to theoriginaldoll.com. And as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording, ripping, stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it to the webmaster. Today, we are going to be talking about some iconic songs from some iconic creatives. We're going to be talking about the importance of Run To You and the original lyrics for that Bodyguard Whitney Houston song. We're going to talk about James Ingram, I Don't Have the Heart, and much more. We're getting it right to the show. My name is James Rodriguez, and this is The Original Doll. On October 11th, 2012, Britney Spears made an appearance at the Grammys tribute to Whitney Houston. Britney talked about Whitney Houston's impact on her and ultimately her career. Britney Spears said, quote, She meant everything to me. She was the voice of everything. Ever since I was a little girl, she's someone that I just worshipped the ground she walked on, and I just idolized her from every which way, and I love her. Britney Spears would then appear on stage and talk about how Whitney Houston played a part in her, Britney Spears, getting her recording contract through Jive. You see, Britney Spears had recorded Whitney Houston's I Have Nothing, and she ultimately ended up singing it for the executives at Jive. In there, Britney Spears would ultimately get her contract. And from that point on, Britney Spears would always talk about her love and admiration for Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson, Madonna, Mariah Carey, and so many others. There was also many different articles that discussed Whitney Houston saying that she'd reached out to Britney Spears to offer any advice, especially during the 2007 year. Because we talked about the importance of I Will Always Love You on Dolly Parton, Whitney Houston, and Britney Spears. And I wanted to talk about another song for Whitney Houston, Run To You. Alan and Judd have been nominated for numerous Academy Awards, Golden Globes, and Grammys over the years. What's great about both of these two is that even beyond that, that they've made music that is still felt and loved by, by the audience today. Many of you have sent in questions asking about the songs and creations, and today we're going to talk about Whitney Houston's Run To You and James Ingram's I Don't Have The Heart. I want you just to really take that in. Their songwriting, their work, the creations that they've had have lasted decades. So re you know revisit these songs and that's what the original doll james Rodriguez is all about revisit these when you learn about these songs you can go back and go oh i'll listen to it so when you listen to james ingram i don't have the heart think about it after you hear about the creation of it then whitney houston run to you when we talk about the different lyrics that that were in the original version of it 
because I think it's important for us to still appreciate and respect these these songs that are that are global hits. In the United States, I Don't Have the Heart by James Ingram was a number one song in the Billboard Hot 100, as well as being a number two song on the Billboard Radio Songs and number two on the Adult Contemporary Charts, as well as number seven on the R&B Digital Song Sales. Here's my conversation with the creators. What I want to do is talk to each of you about how music came to you. Like at what point in both of your lives did music become something that was important to you early on. Take it, darling. No, you go. I'll go after you. It was always important for me. My parents say that I sang before I talked. So I was singing little, humming little melodies when I was like one or two, apparently. You know, I'm not remembering any of them, but I was probably stealing them from other babies, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, it was always in me. My parents were both very musical, although they weren't professional musicians. And um, growing up, I always played music. I always wrote little songs. Uh, I, I remember having like a little, little make-believe banjo thing with a wind-up that would actually play songs and dancing and singing and performing for people when I was like three. And just always a huge part of my life. And I wasn't sure it was going to be my life. I wasn't sure it was going to be my career, my profession, because I was on kind of a fast track academically and I had one side of my brain was going there and the other side was going into the wild creative stuff. And and I never can remember which is which, the left or the right, but apparently I had both of them. At one point, both of them were working. Neither one works anymore, but um, but yeah, so I was, I, I, my dad was a lawyer, my grandfather was a lawyer, so I ended up going to law school. And that's a whole other, you can find our backgrounds all over the place on FBI walls and all sorts of places. No, but, Jeff, <laughs> but I will say on Judd's behalf, to have been a Harvard and Yale lawyer, and to give it all up to be a songwriter, that's an amazing, that's a real risk. That is um, someone who's really brave enough that music is so important in his life that it takes a backseat to, to everything else. And most people don't have the courage to do that. Judd did. So I'm just saying it's a big mm -hmm. deal. Well, it wasn't to me. It was just what I, I, I wanted to go for my dream. I wouldn't have been happy if I hadn't at least given it a really serious try. So I was willing to take that risk. To me, it was like, it's not a risk if you're doing something you really love, as long as you're not hurting anybody and as long as you, you, no one else is relying on you. At that stage of my life, I was single. I didn't have kids. And it's like, okay, I can sleep on the floor for a couple of months or years or whatever I have to do because I'm okay. I love what I'm doing and I, I believe in it and I want to pursue this dream. So, and I, and I've never had to sleep on the floor, actually. I'm exaggerating because, because I did have a law degree. I pioneered the part-time working schedule where I would go to a law firm office Mondays and Tuesdays, <laughs> come home Tuesday night, rip off the, the suit and go to studios and people's uh, and, and playing gigs the rest of the week and then button back down on Monday morning and do it again. You know, in those two days a week, that was my waitering gig. I was able to make enough money living in New York and then out here in Los Angeles to pay the bills. I mean, I wasn't living the high life by any means, but, you know, a lawyer makes a lot of money, even a, a new lawyer. So I was able to do that. But anyway, that's that's the beginning of my story. But Alan, you tell yours. And my story was music has always been very, very important as well. Um, but my dad loved music. My dad was when he was a young kid, he worked in a record store and he always dreamed about being in the music industry. But he got married to my mom when they were both very young when and uh, they got married. My mom was 18 and my dad was 22. And by the time my mother, my mom was 19. And my dad was 23. They had me and my twin brother. 
And so my dad had to take a job to pay the bills. Mm. But every Sunday, this is what was so, it's so vivid in my memory. Every Sunday, my father would make my brother and I bullseye eggs. And then after he he made us bullseye eggs, we'd pull out the Victrola. And and the first song I ever heard in my life was Hush Now, Don't Explain by Billie Holiday. And he would take out these incredible records, you know, whether it was Frank Sinatra or Lena Horne or Sarah Vaughan. Sarah Vaughan was my dad's favorite, or Count Basie. But the thing about my father, he loved it so, he knew every single one of the players on the record. He'd say, oh, this one's this one playing the bass. And this one, you know, I never saw my dad happier than when he was playing records for us on Sunday. And I think that had a very big influence on me, even as a young age. And I I knew since I was five years old, I was going to do something in show business. I thought I was going to be a singer, you know, and both Chet and I sang and did gigs. But um, but it, it was very important to me. And I wrote my first song right when I graduated from college. I just knew I had something to say. And I um, and six months later after college, I got my first song published, although it took eight years before I got my first song recorded. There's a difference between having the song published and having the song recorded. But Jed and I, you know, we, I think we both, and he kept us, listen, not that Jed and I, I think we're pretty, you know, goody two-shoes kind of people. Um, you know, we, we're not wild and crazy guys, but I think it really kept us, we had a vision at a young age of what we wanted to do, and it kept us on the straight and narrow, and it kept us going open. True. So how did you two ultimately end up meeting? Go ahead, darling. He picked me up in a bar, actually. No. Um, we Been there. Were, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. James, I will say this. You know, Judd is straight, has kids, married. But when we go out to, and I'm gay, um, and when when we go out together, I say, Judd, I'm just worried they're going to think that, you know, I don't want to offend you or anything. But I think everybody's going to think that we're lovers. You know? we've, had, we've had a lot of times. We've had a lot of times where people came to him afterwards and said, "Oh, I saw you with your boyfriend the other night. It was really funny." So, and none of that stuff bothers me. I should be so lucky. Oh, you know, I, uh-huh. I'm so lucky with my wife. Anyway, so I think we we remember the story slightly differently, but the gist of it's the same, right? So we have a mutual friend, very old dear friend named Kathy Spanberger, who's the head of Pure Music. She's the second in command and is uh, the biggest independent music publisher in the world. To the owner, uh, the family, it's a family company, Ralph Peer is the owner, and then right beneath him is Kathy. And she was a very big executive even back in the day. This was the late 80s. And she was friends with Alan, and she knew of Alan's work, and she was friends with me. And, and Peer Music was, Alan was already signed to a publishing deal. I was just coming up, and Peer was interested in signing me, and they were starting to work with me and kind of develop me. And we're starting to kind of do that little wary dance of kind of like, I don't know, are you the right publisher? Are you the right writer? Anyway, she kept saying to Alan and to me, I think the other one of you guys should meet, you guys should meet because I think the other person would be a great match for you. I, I just have a feeling that you'd really write great songs together, knowing our two bodies of work at that point. And um, we were like, yeah, great. But we ne- both of us were obviously very busy. And I, I think Alan and I had met once or twice to say, oh, hi, nice to meet you at a, some kind of function or something. But we never actually got together until he went out to lunch with Kathy one day and came back to her office. And they were just talking. And she said, so when are you going to give Judd a lyric? Because Alan is primarily a lyricist. And back in the day. Melody sense, but I am more like good melody sense. Anyway, very musical. I'm not in any way un- take, denigrating his musical sense because he's great with music and great with suggestions. But he's. Primarily a lyricist, a, a words guy. 
I do everything. So, but but when we started writing, uh, it was he would give me lyrics, and I would write the lyrics and change them, and then we get together and finish lyrics and finish the music. But so Kathy was after him. When are you going to give Judd a lyric? When are you, you and know, I said I have a lyric, but I only have a verse and a chorus, and I don't want to give it to anybody until I write the second verse. So she said, no, you're going to give it to me right now, and, you're, and, and you're, we're going to give it to John. And um, Fix the phone. It's so crazy. You know, like you and your husband, for example, you're probably a match made in heaven. The first song we ever wrote was a number one song in America. The second That's song James Ingram. Yeah. was a number one adult contemporary for Alita Adam. So, it you know, um, it was just amazing I gave him a I gave him a verse and a chorus to I don't have the heart. Nine days, I think it was nine days later. We did Four a demo. five days later, we did demo. A demo. Wow. And, and the thing about, you know, here's what makes a good songwriting team, in my opinion. When I would hand Jen a lyric, and my lyric, you know, it's on a flat piece of paper, so it looks flat. And Jed would take my lyric and he always got my lyrics. And he elevated my lyrics to making me look like I was a genius, you know, because the melody was so beautiful that it would make my lyric real. It really elevated my lyric. And then from there, I would, you know, Judd would tweak or work on the lyric with, with me and change things or add things. And then I would make suggestions about the music. But um, from the get go, we had this. This simpatico that doesn't happen with very many people. And as a result of that, it's something you don't. You you really have to nurture and and uh, treasure because we've been writing partners for over thirty years. That's amazing. Yeah, you have well, to pick. Yeah, go ahead, please. I was gonna say, and the the best part about this is that that song, James James Ingram. Like, I've gotten so many messages from people. Tina said, you know, I always wondered how does it feel for any sort of sort sort of songwriters, creatives, or anyone to have made so many signature songs for artists. Do you feel great? Do you feel worried that you're not going to live up the next time? How does the stress happen when you give people signature songs and number one songs? So for both of you, how did you know what I mean? Like that has got to play into that. Well, before we get to that, let me just backtrack one second on the story of writing out of the heart. So you have to picture this. Okay, I was in between apartments in Los Angeles. I was living with a friend for a week. I just let, I had to leave. My lease was done in one place. I was waiting for the lease in the next one. I had nothing there except an old DX7 keyboard sitting on a, a, a table in the living room and an RCA cable going to a stereo. That was my studio at the time. <laughs> I remember that. That's how I was working. And I get this phone call and Alan says, and it's Alan. He goes, hey, it's Alan. And, uh, you know, Kathy's here. She's forcing me. She has a gun to my head and I have to read you this lyric, right? So he reads me this lyric. Okay, I'm sitting there. Okay, well, great. I'm excited. What is it? And he reads me, I don't have the heart to hurt you. It's the last thing I want to do, but I don't have the heart to love you. Not the way you want me to. Okay. So he's talking about my music elevating lyric. I almost freaking fell off my chair. It was so brilliant. And I said, well, that sucks. And I said, that's unbelievable. Goodbye. I need to go write this. I was so inspired by his words, right? There was with, with songwriting to me, at least from a lyrical perspective, the, the thing that makes some songs, lyrics don't matter. Let's be honest. But mm. in a lot of songs, there's at least a germ of an idea or a phrase or something that's hooky that recurs, even if you don't know what the rest of the song means. OK, um, but a really great song that is lyric oriented, you're not going to reinvent the wheel. You're not going to come up with a new emotion. 
but you're going to say it in a slightly different way from a slightly different perspective. And, or you're going to take a cliche or something that everyone says all the time and don't make it a cliche, twist it. And that's without, I don't have the heart to hurt you, but I don't have the heart to love you. It was like, holy shit, who's this guy? So I jump off the phone in 15 minutes. I wrote, I had to change a couple of lyrics. I just moved some stuff around. I wrote the music and I called him back. He said, I got something, come over. <laughs> And I played it for him, and he liked it. And then we wrote. Thank you here in the map. We've been we've been married ever since. Music. Married. It was the first. <laughs> yeah. We went to Vegas, the Elvis Chapel. Anyway, and then we demoed it, and the singer was in a rush. I got to get home because I don't want to. I'm in traffic. I don't want to hit the traffic. So what do we have? Come on, let's sing this faster. So, but it ended up. Laugh. Wink, wink. He wasn't my first, but he was my best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really quick though was that so was that written specifically with you know james ingram in mind or was that just kind of the story writers you know you write a song um and we used the fabulous laurie perry who was one of the perry sisters who sang backgrounds on tour with anita baker and luther vandro she did the vocals on the it was a female vocal um isn't that interesting i Um, didn't know that i mean demo It's just like the record, too. So, you know, some of have to be detectives. And I somehow, and you pitch it to a lot of different people. And so I somehow got um, James Ingram's home home address. And I just coldly sent him the song. A cassette. Uh, in a cassette. And a year, it's about a year later that I get a phone call out of the clear blue. He said, I, I, I pick up, I say, he said, Alan Rich. I said, yes, who is this? He said, this is James Ingram. Almost about fell over. He said, I just want to let you know, I just got back off the road with Quincy. I was gone a year, and I have a box of 400 cassettes here that I just got finished listening to. There's only one song in this whole box that made me cry, and it's your song. And I want you to know that even Quincy Jones doesn't want to record it, I promise you, I'm going to record it. And he did. He did. Yeah, and when we, when we, I made the record with him, um, I went to his house, played the keyboards on it. They invited us down to the studio. Tom Bell, the fantastic, legendary producer in Philadelphia, was producing it. They invited us to the string session. And it was just uh, James, I don't know if it was a rough or his final vocal, and my piano and the strings. And Alan and I were there. It was my first string session, record string session, recording, record-making string session. And it was really thrilling. But Alan and I thought, well, this is awesome. It's unbelievable. But the demo was just my piano, Lori Perry's vocal, and some fake strings. And that was it. And we felt like it's, we, we used to go with our instincts a lot. And, and in those days, you didn't have to feel like the demo was going to be the record. These days, whenever you make a demo, it has to be the record, essentially. People are going to mm-hmm. use the record. It's not like there's a demo and then we'll remake it into a record. But in those days, it was kind of like, you know, this feels good. They'll get it from this. And people could actually kind of hear a piano vocal once in a while and still figure it out. And we just felt like, it just wanted to be that, right? So we did it. Very simple version. We're in the studio with, I'm sorry, I'm really digressing here. but I, I, was, remember, I, had, I know you're We were in the studio at MTA 
And we get a call or somebody comes in with a cassette, says, we have an advanced copy of the record of I Don't Have the Heart, James Ingram. So we take a break from this other recording session we were in and we run back to the cassette player. <laughs> this is in 1990, I guess, right? Yeah. And um, we're all excited. And we hear my piano, right? And then he starts singing and I'm thinking, this is beautiful. Oh my God, it's amazing. And then the second verse comes in and it's still just the piano <laughs> and it's still just the piano. And then the next verse, it's just the piano. And then it goes into the boom, I don't have the, right at the end, the little kind of Las Vegas band where you bye, good night, thanks. And Al and I get off, finish, and we look at one another and go, that's the record? It's just like the demo. <laughs> It's just a piano vocal with strings. Who's going to listen to a piano vocal with strings? Because usually stuff on the radio, most part, for the most part, is very heavily produced, more than just a piano mm -hmm. voice. So we were well, concerned. The drum came in after the modulation, I think, at the end. The drums. At the at very the end. Nobody was listening. Oh, my God. And nobody's listening. Tom Bell knew something maybe we didn't know. He's legendary Tom Bell. And, um, and Benny Medina, who is uh, the head of the record company. But yeah, and we were we were very worried about it. And then it started going up the charts and we were a little less worried. And then it started, went a little further. And we were thinking, well, maybe this was a good idea. And then, you know, the rest is it. Benny Medina? No, not Benny Medina. Really? It was it was, it was was Warner Brothers, right? So wasn't it? Or that, okay. that was, it was Warner Brothers. I think he was there. Yeah, I think it was. It doesn't matter. Anyway, yeah. So how does it make, do we feel pressure? I don't think Al and I ever feel any pressure in terms of, we feel pressure to, to write great stuff. But not in terms of like, uh... and I think Jed and I listen. We, you know, the music business is such that you get knocked down so many times. We yeah. certainly, we certainly don't. Uh, we're not like you know, high on the hog and laying in our jacuzzi in Bel Air. You know, we're, we're, we. I don't think we feel anything. I don't think we feel like we've had. We've done a night. We've we've written our songs and we've had some hits, but we don't feel like. I mean, yes, we've written some really great songs for, for great artists. But I think we don't think in those terms at all. Yeah, I don't I don't go back and I was just telling somebody I it's very rare when Alan and I this happened to both of us recently when we stumble on our old songs. Like something comes up where somebody says, Hey, can you send me some so we have to go back and listen to our old songs? Because I don't do that. I, I mean, once mm -hmm. we write something, unless it's playing on the radio a lot, I'm like, okay, next. It's always I love it. I am very proud of it, don't get me wrong, but but I don't, I don't sit and think, oh my God, wasn't that great? Wasn't it? But then once in a while, we'll surprise ourselves and go back and find our old songs. And go, oh, did we write that? That was pretty I, good. I just said that to Judd on yeah, because I both had that experience. Yeah, some old boxes, and I have boxes and boxes of cassettes, and I found it. I found a cassette of a couple of our songs that just so blew me away. I just you know that the, the reality of the songwriter is you have a certain, you have a few songs that make it, and the rest of your songs and they may be just as great sit on the shelf for the rest of, of their lives and you you listen to them and go, god how did that one get away it's yeah you know, it's, yeah uh, um and i'll tell i'll tell you something as i told judd what was really crazy i because judd and i both were singers in new york we didn't know each other in new york but we were both judd played piano and sang and i was a a performer and and i found this cassette in the same box that i found judd's song and I'm one, and I in nineteen. I hate to say the the, the year because nineteen, yeah, <clears throat> so many years ago. But I was 19, young. It was nineteen twenty three. No, it was, <laughs> but it was 19, before recorded music. There, I said in the year it was nineteen seventy eight. It says it on this on the cassette. 
And I opened up, this was so fortuitous, who, who would have ever thought? But I was picked to be Sissy Houston's opening act. And and in 1978, I opened for Sissy Houston at Reno Sweeney's. Sissy Houston, who's Whitney's cousin. And well, that was Whitney's mom. Oh, yeah. Whitney's and, mom, I'm sorry, yeah. Right. Whitney sang, and Whitney sang, and Warwick. And, um, and I found that, I was like, you know, from 1978, to who in our wildest dreams would have ever thought that it would come full circle that Jed and I would actually have a moment in a in Whitney's life and a, and a lovely moment in Whitney's life. So, um, but yes, I did listen to a lot of songs and I'm I'm blown away by our, I'm very moved by a lot of our songs that we wrote that haven't seen the light of day. This is the great part because you actually are answering a lot of these questions because so many people were asking, you know. At what point did it go from, okay, it was recorded to released? Like, was it one of those long times or was it short? Because some, we've talked to songwriters and producers before that some of them are like, it was recorded. They added last minute to the album. We heard it on the radio like three months later. Others are like, well, that was recorded for the album project two projects ago sort of thing. So well, how fast did that happen from the time that James cut it to the time that it was ultimately released on radio? Well, let me can can I Judd? Let's can we tell them the Stacy Stacy Lattisaw and the uh, what, sure yeah sure Stacy Lattisaw the um recorded it as well and they both were releasing it within a week of each other. And he's asking uh, how long it took from the time we maybe wrote it to when it was recorded by James to then after he recorded it to when it was actually released. Which in our experience, generally people record stuff and put it out. That's that's generally but, how it with some big there, there is a good James Ingram story. James yeah, Ingram, there is. Um, had three singles that came out that didn't do particularly well. And they did not want to release a fourth single on James. And James stormed up to the record label and said, you're releasing one more song. And that is, I don't have the heart. I want you to release that. They said, well, we'll release it, but we're not going to put any promotion behind it. So Judd and I and our publishers, this is, you know, blind faith and belief. And believe me, Judd and I did not have a lot of money, but we all... We just decided that we wouldn't take a shot. And Judd and I and our publishers each invested a little money to hire an independent promotion person to um, to uh, release the record above wow. And so all of a sudden, this little this little uh, radio station in Florida picked up on it. And the next thing you know, it caught on like wildfire. And uh, and that was because we took matters into our own hands because the record label was not going to. Isn't that correct, Judd? Yep. That, that's the great thing. Is it's such a perfect microcosm of the music business because when that song came around, when everybody heard Ingram's recording of it at the label and everyone was talking about it and he was talking about it, this is the song. This is the song for the record, right? But the record company, he was not a hip guy. I mean, he was a hip guy in person. He was very hip and he was very cool. Very tragic. Died a few years ago, much too young. Mm -hmm. Great guy. Um, but in terms of his persona, he was a crooner. You know, he's one of still my probably my favorite female singer of the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, but he wasn't a cool artist, right? So they had decided on this album to keep up with what was starting to happen with hip hop and street more streety kind of music. Mm -hmm. They were gonna take a stuff, they were gonna record some stuff that was streetier and cooler, quote unquote. So they kept putting out these singles that tried to position James as the cool kind of dancing on stage in the videos. 
and it was just flopping. I mean, it was just like lid ballooning in a big way, right? And they do this three times and it just keeps getting worse. And finally, they're like, well, we're not going to do this. And, and as Alan said, James and we were like, what happened to our song? I mean, everybody know. And they were like, uh, well, you know, so they put it out gets to be number one, right? They're really reluctant. All right, fine. We twist their arms. They do it. Gets blows up. Of course. And I, the day it goes to number one, a friend of mine calls me and he's laughing his head off. You know, we're celebrating and he goes, I'm over at Warner brothers. Right. And I have all the, I have these, some meetings here and I'm talking to all the people, the place is in a frenzy because Warner brothers was James label and they had the number one song in the country and everyone's toasting and he's going from office to office. And every person saying the same thing to him. I knew that was the song. Oh God, I knew Go that back. was a huge hit. <laughs> I never gave up on it. <laughs> Alan and I are taking credit for our hard work. No, everybody's taking credit as if they they were totally ready to let the record die. Nobody wanted to put out another single. They were like, "Yeah, good song, but we're sick of James Ingram. Go, go away." And it became, you know, his biggest hit. So, well, hey. and the crazy the crazy thing with all that is, as I've been going back through chart archives radio logs and everything is i always put it in in relation to what was out there like you had janet jackson bobby brown you had all this like new jack swing happening exactly and then wanted him to compete exactly and so when i was looking at that listening i was like man like i don't think of the other singles as part of james it because for me as just a listener and i was like i think i was eight or nine when the the song came out and so i what I love about that song and you see child labor workers right there. <laughs> but what I loved about the songs is that I loved the sound of the songs. And as I got older, I started getting the lyrics. And that to me is a testament of how great of a song it is. Because as a kid, I was like, this sounds really cool. And I was like, this guy is like, I just pictured this guy with like a cigar in the back, like pleading to somebody just saying, no, you need to go away. Like in my mind, it was this whole separate, he was singing to me, of course, but I just thought, as I got older, it was like an onion that it kept, I kept seeing different things at different part of my life. And we had tons of DMs and messages and people said, I did not realize how great the lyrics were until I was going through the exact same thing at that exact same moment. So thank you so much. So they wanted me to, we have Tina from Brooklyn. We have Chad from Egypt, uh, Tanaya from Moscow, all sending these things saying how much- they loved it. And by the way, your song came up as a funny thing with many people because they said when they went to go get their booster shots and everything, the the doctor or nurse would say like the song would come on. It's like, I don't have the heart to hurt you, but this is going to hurt. Like many of them referenced that they were getting vaccinations while this song was in there. They're like, this is the universe just like poking That's fun great. at us now. That's really um, fun. Yeah. But so let me ask you this for both of you now to, to, to put a bow on this part is what do you... What do you think now, 32 plus years later, about this song in retrospect as, you know, being more mature, older, things like that? How do you look at it? And do you look at it differently than you did 32 years ago? You want to take that down? You want me to? You go first. I'll just say. I still feel the same way I felt about it when I was laying in bed after Stacey Lattisaw and James Ingram had released singles of the same song. She did a version of the same song. They both released singles at the same time. And for the first few weeks, neither one did anything. And I was laying in bed thinking to myself, I don't know if I can do this anymore because I can't write a better song than that. And I still feel that. 
I do too. I think I can write a better song than that. Everything came together in that song. It's just the, the lyric idea is just brilliant. And that's Orly Allen. And, I think it's and, one of the most perfect songs. We I think, would. yeah, it's, it's one, it's still one of my favorite songs. And I don't feel like, oh, you know, we could have done this better. I just feel like it's a little gem and I'm very proud. I was very proud of it then and then, and I still am. So. And here's how I feel about it. I honestly feel that someone needs to record it again because it's, it's, it's been, yeah. yeah. And someone, it's time for someone to record the song again and have another hit with it. And or maybe Megan the Stallion or Drake, I know you're listening, sample it and put it in your next single. Or or do a leap, do a do a do a do a leap. There you go. Well, that was actually somebody had said this is the perfect song. This is from Kyle from Canada. He said, "I just don't understand how this has not been covered yet." From Adele to Jesse J. I mean, even when George Michael, I had interviewed uh, Johnny Douglas, who worked on George Michael, a few of George Michael's albums, and many people brought up like this is a George Michael song like if George Michael wasn't making his own like this to me makes the most sense like songs from the last century sort of thing um and another person said the great thing about a song like this is all you really need is a great singer this song shows that simplicity does in fact work with such complex lyrics so bravo to the duo who created this live long prosper love always and ever Alyssa Oh, so sweet. Thank you, Alyssa. It's so sweet. You know, we do this because we love music. We love writing. We always have. And of course, we we always had dreams of, of being able to make a living doing it and living nice lives as a result. But at the core of everything we do is, as Alan always always says, we, we aim to move and touch people and to know that we impact people when people come up to us to say things like this or just stop us in the street or we're in a party or wherever and somebody says you know your song it always meant so much to me i always love that it's that just never stops you know making my heart beat so. I, I agree i agree with that so okay. it's great great so thank you for that thank you, you no know, and I, and I, listen i'm a self-deprecating person most of the time and i would always be so nervous giving a lyric because i always felt like it looks so plain and mm-hmm. here's the reality i call my i call myself a missionary position songwriter because i'm very traditional in my lyrics they're not fancy they're i write conversations i wish i was a poet i wish i wrote these lyrics that was so deep and heavy but i write a real like conversation and that's when i tell you know both jed and i uh, we mentor young music students as part of giving back and i always tell my tell that to my kids you know um my my goal is to say it in a way, put the person on the opposite side of the room across from you. What would you say to them if you were saying this? And and that's what I did when I wrote wrote the lyric to I Don't Have the Heart. I was walking back and forth in the room, making believe I was an actor. What would I say next? And but but I'm very simple. I'm not I do tw- Jen and I always have a little twist, you know, but but I am a very simple lyric writer. I'm not like, you know, um a poet. And I always feel uncomfortable, you know, sometimes I feel embarrassed about it. But that, but you have to know who you are and you have to know your, you know, your the best lane to go into. And it, and even when Judd and I started, everybody told us not to write ballads. Remember Judd, our publisher said, don't write ballads. Everybody said, we should be writing up tempos. But Judd and I, when we wrote a ballad together, there was a magic that happened. And so we had to do what came natural and honest for both of us. Not saying we didn't write enough tempo because we can. Yeah. But, 
but our thing is pop apples. Yeah, we got another, it was actually from Nina in Norway. She said, can you please tell them whoever broke their heart, thank you so much secretly because I love everything that they've done and it's gotten me through so much. And I think that they prove that passionate songs can last for generations. So thank you so much. Hopping out for a quick second to remind you to rate the show and tell your friends about it. I truly appreciate you taking the time to listen. And as we honor all of these great creatives with the stories behind it, I've seen so many great messages from you all where you're falling in love with these songs again. And that's what this is for. Back to the show. What I want to do is hop to uh, the, the Whitney Houston run to you because this song what I think has been amazing is we've heard on the original dial, we had different people who have worked with Whitney Houston and, and produced songs and written songs for her and later in her career. And I always get people asking about Run To You because many people were like, they would ask me, did you know that it, it was a, a let go song, not let go? Do you know that they flipped it? They had to change it last minute. I was like, we will be talking about that. So can we go back to this? Because we have... Georgie from, I think it's Medellin, said, hey, can you please ask, how early on did the duo get invited to join on the Bodyguard soundtrack? This seems like a song that makes sense for the whole thing. I did read something about lyrics had changed leading right up to the release of the song. Can you please ask for a little more information and tell them thank you so much for the decades of great music? So sweet. So sweet. How did you all get involved in the, the bodyguard project? Well, just to just to let you know, just to give you some perspective on historically where we are. It's 30 years later, and there's a lot of hoopla right now surrounding the song and the bodyguard record and the film as well. There's a, a new movie coming out about her to, to commemorate 30 years later, right? It's coming out in December, I think. They're using Run to You in the movie. We haven't seen it yet, but we've heard it's a really nice usage. It's called I Want to Dance with Somebody. It's a biopic. Right. Nice. It's a biopic. Um, we're getting interviewed by people in her estate. They're doing a whole package. They're putting stuff out there. So there's going to be a lot of Whitney stuff and run to you and bodyguard stuff going on. And not just our song, but all the songs from the record, of course, uh, in the next few months, because it just doesn't go away. I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It's, it was a beautiful moment. She was an incredible person, the most incredible singer I've ever worked with. And Al and I have been blessed to work with some of the greatest singers of all time, really. And I always say there's spectrum of like you know not so good good very good extremely good great you know singers mm-hmm. and then there's Whitney Houston who's just in her own universe I mean when we were in the studio working with her I was kind of producing the vocal with David Foster and she kept saying Judd am I singing this right and we'd be looking around the studio Alan's sitting there and I'm looking and you got to imagine it's like the head of the record company's there uh, the head of the film company's there. Kevin Costner's there with his entourage. She, all of her entourage are there. And they're all looking at you like their heads all swiveled. And like, Judd, what are you going to say to that? Because everything she sang, even the mistakes, was amazing. It was all amazing. And she was so hoarse, she couldn't even talk. She didn't walked in with a cold, yeah, that day. But we'll tell you the story. And she went in the vocal booth. We looked at each other like, I cannot freaking believe this. Yeah, she was, she's just... Um, they asked... Was it Whitney or David who asked? David, um, David Foster. Judge, would you mind going in to do a scratch vocal for Whitney so she could hear it in her ears? I would have, I knew that I would have fainted if they had asked me. I'm glad they asked. In, in her key, of course. It wasn't, you know. And Judd has a very, very high voice. 
very high singing. <laughs> and so he went and, and when he got finished singing the vocal, everybody applauded because it takes balls to sing in front of Whitney Houston. What was I going to do? You know, I think they, they weren't applauding the performance. They were just, I think they were applauding that I got through it somehow without dying. But let's tell them the story. Let's tell them the story. You want to start, Tom? No, you start and I'll jump in. Okay, so the word is out that Whitney Houston's doing a movie, her first movie, and it's a musical, and they need four songs. And every publisher, decent publisher, and every decent songwriter in the world gets a brief from the record company and the film company saying, these are the four songs we need, four different spots in the movie. No, no video. No script, nothing, just little capsule versions of their four spots we need original songs, right? Everything else is kind of filled up already. So we look at this, we get this from our publishers, and we go off and we write a song. We decide we're going to write the breakup song. So we write a song, I want to run to you, but you're not there to run to anymore, okay? And it was perfect timing for Alan, he'll tell you. Yeah, I'll jump in here. What happened was I was in a 10-year relationship that, that was breaking up. We were writing the song and it just coincided with a breakup in my own life. And this is how the song originated. I was dropping off my boyfriend at his apartment for the last time because we had broken up and gotten back together. But I knew this time was the was the real time we were gonna it was over. And so he lives in a building where he still lives today on Hollywood on Sycamore and Hollywood Boulevard. And the the um staircase was a glass staircase. And so I let him out of the car. I watched him walk up the stairs. And my initial reaction being who, who I am is I wanted to jump out of the car and run right after him. But I knew I couldn't do it. So I, I don't know, I just got this feeling. I I had a, a scrap piece of scrap paper. I put it on the steering wheel and I wrote, this is the original lyric. I wanna run to you, I wanna run to you. Just like I always did before, come knocking at your door. I wanna run to you, how I wanna come to you but you're not there to run to anymore. That was our original, that was the breakup song. And then I wrote a verse and then I gave it to Judd. Uh, um, but so he, come, he comes in the studio and we go, this is, we're, let's, we're gonna write this song for this moment. So we write the song, right? And we, and we think, this is pretty good. We're pretty excited. We get a singer we worked with a lot named Valerie Pinkston. Amazing. And when you're doing demos for particular artists, in this case, we were doing it specifically for Whitney. You wanna get somebody who sounds enough like the artist the artist hopefully will be able to hear it for herself or himself or themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that was her. She was, a, she is an amazing singer and she didn't sound just like Whitney, but she sounded enough like Whitney, right? And she captured the vibe. We, and then we had a connection through Alan's publisher, Carol Ware, who was friends with a guy named Jerry Griffith, who was Clive Davis's right-hand man. Clive Davis was a legendary record guy mm -hmm. who was, had discovered Whitney and was her record executive, owned Arista Records. And so Alan says, let's, Carol and Alan and I get together and she says, I'm going to give it to Jerry so it can get directly to Clive because he's going to be masterminding this whole process. If Jerry loves it, we were strategizing. If Jerry loves it, he'll put it on Clive's desk for us. He'll put it, prioritize it. So we do this and then we wait. And then one Alan day, I'll have a clear blue. I come home and I get a, I could play the phone message, but um, I still have it. Um, I get a message from Clive Davis and they say, hey, this is a nice message. You're going to like this. This is Clive Davis. And we really like your song. And Whitney heard it too. And she likes it too. I, I can be reached at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Please call me at da 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 I thought I was going to pass out. I really did. But I called Judd. We were freaking out. We called Clive. I think we went there to, to, to meet with him. And um, But then Clive called Judd up and said, 
Go ahead, Judge. You take it from there. Well, so this is one of our pet favorite phrases in telling stories like this is not so fast, right? Because I'm just talking about the gates before. So Clive says, love it. It's great. It's going to make, it's going to be fantastic for the movie. And we're thinking, hallelujah, hallelujah. And again, this was a very simple demo, right? This is another one of the songs. Mm. It wasn't even in time. This was another one where I was just playing and I was feeling like it was had such a great vibe out of time that I just did it out of time. And then we overdubbed a couple little fake guitar parts on something called the Proteus, which was a very hip synthesizer at the time. I played that and some fake strings, put the vocals on. That was it. Very simple demo. Figuring again, this is one that the vibe of it is so strong that hopefully someone will, they'll be able to understand it just from this. So Clive calls and he goes, we love it, love it, love it. There's just this one little thing, right? You go, okay, what? He goes, can you make it a little more like a Whitney, make it sound more like a Whitney record? So Alan and I look at one and like, so I said, what do you mean? Now you got to remember again, this is the most sophisticated, most successful record executive of all time. Harvard lawyer also, by the way. Brilliant, right? So I'm thinking he's going to explain. He goes, you know, like a Whitney record. <laughs> that was all the direction we got. So we went, yeah, but you should, I get you. Sure, no problem. And Alan and I get up. All... So the, the only thing we could think of was we, he wanted more production. So we had to go back into the studio and add overdub drums and bass and a couple of other little things, right? Got to remember the song wasn't in time. You know what I mean by that, right? Mm, it was yep. like click track. It wasn't quantized. It was like all over the place. So... We, we hire a friend of ours who's a great drummer, and we spent four hours overdubbing drums on a three and a half minute song because every bar he would, I want to run to, okay, stop. <laughs> Listen and go, slows down a little here, and then he would go there, and then it speeds up a little. Four hours. So we do that, and we send it to Clive, and he goes, love it, fantastic, we're in, right? Not, Not so bad, bad right? <laughs> <laughs> from the director. We're in the studio working on a record for Ray Charles. Yeah, we were right. We were working on a song for Ray Charles for his record. And um, and he calls us up and said, we love your song, but we're changing the scene. It's just one little thing. Yeah. To take a chance on my scene. And I swear this is what he said. It wouldn't be too much trouble to rewrite the lyric, right? <laughs> Goodness. <Is> that right? <laughs> so, so what do we say in response? No, no problem. problem, babe. <laughs> and then Clive falls. We were totally freaking and Then we out. fall down with like a heart attack. You know, our lives are flashing before our eyes. Then Clive calls. And Clive says, heard what happened. Don't worry about it. The song is such a hit the way it is. It says, try to rewrite it if it works, great. But if it doesn't, we're going to use it for her greatest hits record, which is coming out in a year. Asterisk to that, the greatest hits record came out nine years later. So mm -hmm. Alan and I get off the phone with him. We didn't know that, of There's course. No way we're waiting for the greatest hits record. So we've got to make this work. So we go yeah, back. Said, before you send the rewrite um, to the director, send it to me for approval. Jen and yep. I wrote it, and we ended up writing, you know, I want to run to you. Um, I want to run to you. Um, won't you take me in your arms? Keep me safe from harm. I want to run to you. Um, but if I come to you, will you stay or will you, will run, you run away? Right. And... Um, we send it to Clive. Clive closes up and says, guys, you did a great job. Send it to the director. And the rest is history. Yes. So, yeah, we, the film company loved it. He loved it. And then, and then we get... But it was not an easy... It was, we went through so many trials and tribulations to make that happen. 
It was not like everybody loved the song, but it went through a lot of changes. Yes. And, and we get here with yeah, and, and she walks in and she's sick, as Alan said, and she sat down right next to me and said, Judge, show me how to how to sing this. I mean, she knew it, of course, very well, but she wanted the songwriter to walk her through it. And I did. And then she then and I had to do the scratch vocal and then she and sang. Then we got invited, we got invited to watch Whitney record the video for the scene when she's in the white with the long hair and the white outfit. Oh, running yeah. through the clouds. We went there, we went to the sound stage. The soundstage was so humongous, and there was a girl all the way far away from us, and um, we said, "Oh my God, that must be Whitney Standen." But she's so she's gorgeous, so gorgeous. I think she's even more beautiful than Whitney. And and all of a sudden, we see our, our, our hand go up, and a woman was running over to us, and she was so gorgeous. It was her. It was hey, her. you guys, how you doing? Yeah, so yeah, it was so he was so nice. Because she was. I mean, she if you talk about the quintessential uh star, that was Whitney Houston. She was she sang like nobody. She just had, you know, God given God gave her several gifts. And that's and and the rest is history when we got nominated for an Oscar. She sent us two dozen roses. And um it's still one of the biggest albums of all time, the biggest soundtrack album of all time. And oh. so that was, I mean, listen, we wrote a really good song. I'm very proud of that song, but that so many things had to work. The timing was just right. Um, and and as I said, so many gates had to open and shut and we worked very, very hard, but you know, you always need a little bit of luck in this stuff. And we were right. so we very and, blessed. And also, when, the, when the four songs ended up, that they were looking for ended up happening, one was, um, one was, uh, two of them were covers. Originally, it was supposed to be what becomes the broken, the broken heart. heart. Yeah, but um, I forgot yeah. his name uh, in England. He, uh, he released it and had a number one song. So Maureen Crow came up with "I Will Always Love You." I don't think she always gets the credit for it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure she's the one, the music supervisor. So, but you just think about it. "I Will Always Love You" was a cover. Um, "I'm Every Woman" was a cover. David Foster being the producer, you know, he was going to get one. So seriously, out of the whole entire world of songwriters, there was only one open song for an outside song. And so everything had to align for it to happen. And yeah. Jen and I are so grateful and so thankful that the that everything, planets aligned for us to have that song happen. <laughs> Judd and Alan, thank you so much for being here today on the original. Yeah, it was a pleasure. You're a very good interviewer and a nice guy. So thanks so much. Here are some fun facts about Run to You. It was a number one song in Canada on the Adult Contemporary. And in the US, this is what's amazing. It was number 10 on the Adult Contemporary here. It was number 16 on the radio songs, number 21 bubbling under, number 28 the R&B hip hop songs, number 30 hot 100 recurrent, and it would be on six other charts. Additionally, it would be top 10 in Ireland and Portugal. Ultimately, it would be in 17 countries charting worldwide. And just within the US, it's on 11 different charts. I just wanted to add that in because I think it's important because it was a global song and this was the fourth single off The Bodyguard. Usually by that point, many people are like, let's move on to the next project. So this was still doing well. And in the US, it's gold certified. In the UK, it's silver certified with sales over 200,000 copies. I like throwing these facts in because I think it's important to see not only did it have that critical acclaim, but it had that commercial success too. 
Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Join me on Instagram, the.original.doll. I'll see you on the flip side.